This is episode 243 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Ethics and Policy with Dr. Insu Hyun. Hey everybody, we are Drs. Daylon James and Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. The Stem Cell Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. If you enjoy the Stem Cell Podcast, rate us and leave a review. We're always looking for feedback on how the podcast can be improved and for suggestions on guests. Today, we have Dr. Insu Hyun from Harvard Medical School. He's on the podcast to talk about ethical issues in stem cell research, of which there are plenty. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in stem cell news. That's coming right up. But first, we're just two weeks away from ICCR 2023 taking place in Boston, Mass. Make sure to stop by the Stem Cell Podcast booth in the exhibit hall to learn more about the podcast and how you could be featured on an upcoming episode. Dale and I will also be hosting a meet and greet event, just like last year, at the Meetup Hub on Friday, June 16th at 9.30 a.m. We can't wait to see you there. Yeah, love the Meetup Hub. Can't wait to get there and see all you guys in person. For the roundup today... We have a nice bit of symmetry here. I got two signaling stories. Arun's got two heart maturation stories. I'm leading off here with this story about PI3 kinase. You know, we usually talk about kinase and pharmacology as kind of inhibitors. You know, we're trying to target cancer in the most, most cases or other diseases. It's usually like trying to break the signaling apparatus using inhibitors. Um, and for that reason, kinases have been extensively developed in industrial commercial atmosphere. Um, and there have been limited efforts to generate activators, right? Uh, kinase activators. And there could be some beneficial activities of some of these enzymes, including tissue regeneration, immune stimulation, metabolic sensitization. But we'll come back around to that. Uh, PI3 kinase is... Those class of tyrosine kinases um, regulate cell metabolism, growth, proliferation, migration, and overactivation of PI3 kinases, and specifically their effectors AKT and mTOR, are famous for wreaking havoc with cancer and immunomodulatory perturbations. Um, and for that reason, there's been extensive development in developing or in generating these PI3 kinase pathway inhibitors. Um, but as I said, activation could also be a therapeutic benefit uh, for um, leveraging that uh, activity of PI3 kinase in mediating tissue protection or regeneration. For example, in ischemia reperfusion injury in the heart, which you know, you know very well, Arun. Um, also uh, protection from ionizing radiation or just like garden variety enhancing tissue repair. So with a mind to find a PI3 kinase activator, which there's been a few efforts. I mean, this isn't a totally out of the blue idea. People have thought of this before, but the existing candidates just haven't shown a high degree of activity or specificity or have had other problems. Um, but, you know, this is a really uh, major breakthrough here from Bart Van Heisebroek. Sorry for any mispronunciation from the University of College in London. Uh, the group, they're, report, they're reporting the discovery in nature here. That's why it's a big, high-profile article. They, 
they show uh, using the screening methodology, they discover this UCL TRO 1938. We're going to call it 1938 from here on. Uh, it's a small molecule activator of this specific uh, PI3 kinase alpha isoform, which is part of the complex that mediates signaling. Um, it was selective, uh, transiently activated PI3 kinase signaling in rat, mouse, and human cells. Uh, and it mediated uh, responses like cell proliferation, also neurite outgrowth. Uh, and here we go in, in, a, in a rodent model. So a couple rodent models, they like took this ex vivo rat heart, but also in vivo mouse uh, ischemia reperfusion injury. There was a cardioprotective effect by this 1938 compound. Also in a rat nerve crush injury, it enhanced nerve regeneration. Right. So this is a pretty big deal. You know, we hate PI3 kinase. You hear it and you're like, oh, no. But here, I think we're going to turn a corner on PI3 kinase in the context of regeneration. The key here being we have a, a, a compound that mediates transient short term activation, uh, which could be important in mediating tissue protection and, and even regeneration. So I, I might uh, see this as an adjuvant in a lot of these endogenous stem cell mo mobilizing therapies, or even in the context of uh, exogenous, you know, pluripotent IPS cell derived uh, therapies, maybe it would be helpful to have PA3 kinase at the right levels uh, and tweaked in the right cells. It, it could be a major boon for regenerative therapies. This is a big deal. And obviously, as a, somebody who studies cardioprotection, this is uh, of interest to me. And it was really cool to see that cardioprotective effect in the the rodent model using this 1938 compound. You know, you're right. You mentioned at the beginning, not a whole lot of people are looking for, you know, PI3 kinase activators as typically inhibitors of these signaling pathways since you're uh, looking to inhibit these signaling pathways to prevent cancer in a lot of contexts. But AKT PI3 kinase has this very strong protective effect, proliferative effect, and particularly for cardiac function, whether it's in ischemia reperfusion injury, or even in the work that I study, uh, cardioprotection from cardiotoxic cancer drugs. There's a lot of cancer drugs that do damage to the heart and perhaps administering this 1938 compound with the chemotherapy can help protect the heart from some of those cardiotoxic impacts of the of the drug. So I think this is very exciting. I mean, this is a, a lucrative area of study, that's for sure. Um, and I can't wait to, to, honestly, to get this in my hands and to use it in my own lab. Yeah, need a better name than 1938 when it hits the, the shelves there. But, you know, we, we talk about all the time, whenever we talk about any kind of farmer approach, and particularly with AKT, you got to watch out for systemic delivery. And yeah, sure, you just had a heart attack. You're not worried about seeding cancer. Better to have that uh, recovery from the ischemia reperfusion or protection um, from it. But, you know, you do have to consider uh, in all these studies that you might be, you know, giving a little juice to some kind of precancerous uh, cells in the body. So, of course, there's that to consider. But I think we're really zeroing in on methods for, you know, precise delivery, maybe even local focused or, or you know, tweaking the levels. Um, and as I just alluded to, it's this transient use in the context of injury. Yeah, I'll take it. I'm not worried about taking a hot dose of PI3 kinase activator if it's going to allow me to recover from a heart attack. I'll worry about the cancer down the line. By the way, we got the, the CAR T cells, so... Give me cancer if it saves me from a heart attack, my man. 
famous last words there, Daylon. Oh, we'll, we'll see how that goes. But yeah, I think these are very powerful signaling pathways. And anytime you try to manipulate them, they can have downstream impacts. And the other thing, this is a small molecule, right? Small molecules are dirty. <laughs> As we know, they have off-target effects of their own. So that's worth looking into for sure. But exciting nonetheless, and we'll stick in the realm of cardiac biology. Actually, both my papers here for the Roundup are cardiac-relevant papers. Next up, moving to a paper coming from the lab of uh, Jörn Bakers, and actually a lot of familiar faces on this particular paper, Eldad Sahor, who's a very well-known cardiac biologist, Christine Mummery, of course, of the ICCR and over there in Europe as well, cardiac IPS cardiomyocyte extraordinaire. This is a, a zebrafish story, but with uh, a lot of implications for cardiomyocyte maturation, and there are some elements of, of translating some of these findings into mice as well, into, into a rat model. So let's get into it. This is titled The Interplay Between Calcium and Sarcomeres Directs Cardiomyocyte Maturation During Regeneration. Of course, we've talked about cardiomyocyte maturation all the time in the context of iPSCs. This is a huge limitation for iPSC cardiomyocytes. They're immature. Um, and this is looking at maturation sort of in a different context, but again, you might be able to translate some of these findings to iPSC studies. Zebrafish is really the, the model system here, and we know that zebrafish have this amazing cardiac regenerative ability, replacing damaged tissue with brand new cardiomyocytes that can proliferate uh, from the remainder of the heart that's still there after the cardiac injury. But I mean, a lot of folks have studied the steps leading up to the proliferation of those surviving cardiomyocytes that are left over after that injury. I mean, the number one name that comes to mind is Ken Poss from Duke University. Um, you know, he's been studying this for 20 years, but not as much as known about the mechanisms that control the proliferation and the redifferentiation to the mature heart state. So the return to the full, fully formed cardiac structure after that injury. What they did here is they did a bunch of cool approaches in zebrafish explanted hearts and actually found that the cardiac dyad, the structure that regulates the calcium handling and the excitation contraction part of the, the cardiac rhythm cycle, actually plays a really key role in this redifferentiation process and this maturation process. In particular, they, they narrowed it down even further and found that there's this component of the cardiac dyad called this leucine-rich repeat-containing 10, or LRRC10, acting as a negative regulator of proliferation. So it's inhibiting proliferation. It's, it's causing the heart to return to its proper size and actually prevents cardiomegaly, uh, which is an enlarged heart. Okay, um, And they found that the function of this LRRC10, this component of the cardiac dyad, is actually conserved in mammalian cardiomyocytes. That's the really cool part of it. There's an evolutionary part to the story. So it's not just a zebrafish regeneration mechanism, but also has implications in, in mammals as well. And again, that's the hope, right? We can harness some of these amazing regenerative capabilities in zebrafish for cardiac regulation and cardiac restoration in, in humans. I mean, still certainly a long way to go, but we are taking as much as we can from these amazing fish and translating them into people. So ultimately, I think it's it's an important study because it'll tell us a little bit more about these underlying mechanisms for heart regeneration. And again, maybe one day, hoping, hoping to apply them into adult mammalian cardiomyocytes as well. Yeah, I, I find the story really interesting. Of course, the whole idea of maturation of these kind of rudiments we get from iPS cells is really critical to applying them clinically. And, and for me, the takeaway here 
is that, you know, yeah, there's a lot of details here, but I, I didn't read it closely enough. So I'm going to come with my thousand foot view. And that was that, that it's not a, a passive process maturation, but it's an active process. And there's, there's bits and pieces there that can be manipulated. Anytime you have that mechanism uh, well understood, I think it's something that maybe can be accelerated. So I, I had hope from this story because seeing all the amazing progress that's being made across the board, but really particularly in translating uh, the the these cells into therapies, you know, talking about beta cells, but also others with the blood and kind of out of the box things that I wouldn't have predicted. But I would have thought we were further along with the heart. Um, and of course, I recognize that it's such a tough problem and such a complex machine, but I, I'm really hopeful that studies like these will allow us to finally put into more uh, translational experiments, the, these kind of grafting therapies, that and the Chuck Mary looking at the you know asynchrony there and the arrhythmia, stories like that. I'm hoping that we can get more of these cells into hearts in, in, in large animal models so that we can get closer to the, the holy grail there, which is cell therapy, cardiomyocyte, IPS, cardiomyocyte therapy. So uh, exciting work here and, and another brick in the wall. Yeah, I agree. And I, I'm happy that we're approaching this in the right way. Of course, the cardiac cell therapy field has been ridiculed in the past because of, you know, falsification of certain data points and, you know, just approaches that were not scientifically sound. Of course, you know, you can look into what I'm talking about, 20 plus years of of concerning studies that are in this particular area of cardiac cell therapy. But I think here, yeah, we're, we're thinking about good science, perhaps in, in relevance to the Chuck Murray work, of course, using these custom IPS cardiomyocytes that don't have these arrhythmogenic potentials and uh, using, using those for translational therapies, a properly investigated, vetted out cell type. And I think the next step is like what you're alluding to. Perhaps we can harness some things that we learn from the zebrafish, some things we learn from non-human non-mammalian systems that have this incredible regenerative capacity that's just waiting to be harnessed. The other part of it is so much of modern, modern biomedical science is reliant on discoveries and technologies that come from other animals. We think about GFP, came from a jellyfish. CRISPR-Cas9 came from some you know extremophile bacteria or whatever that we harness and use for genome editing, right? So who knows what we can do with when we look to our, you know, evolutionary ancestors for inspiration, right? Absolutely. Bring it back to Thermus Aquaticus. Love that guy. Um, <laughs> the uh, what you're talking about too with the the long road. Uh, that's my segue. Taking it all the way back. You know, we've been we've been studying pluripotency since the beginning, and that was most of the work. Uh, not notwithstanding all the differentiation and cell specificity and you know tissue regeneration applications of ES cells. Really, at the beginning, we were so focused on pluripotency. What what it was mechanistically, how we could control it. Even how, like, what was the recipe? That was the first thing. How do we keep these cells pluripotent in culture? And here we are, you know, really decades later, in the case of the mouse, still asking the same questions about pluripotency. Although in this story, in a super refined way, that really gets at the mechanism, all right? And what we're talking about here is, like, I brought it back to another signaling story, as I mentioned in the open. I got two signaling stories, and this one is about the signals that control pluripotent cell fates, right? And to put it simply, we're talking about FGF, 
MAP kinase and ERK signaling, right? That's the triad that controls differentiation, self-renewal of pluripotent stem cells. Um, and, you know, more specifically, the ES cells are kept pluripotent by inhibiting the ERK signaling, um, and that's mediated by AKT, AKT signaling downstream of FGF. Uh, and, you know, one of the major questions, though, is that the what what it is specifically in terms of dura duration and dynamics uh, of the interaction of these signaling pathways and how do they control uh, pluripotency. <clears throat> and this comes at a time where it's been recognized that information isn't really binary. When you, know, you think of a signaling and a switch and receptor and ligand, it's on or off. But the reality is that in addition to that kind of binary signaling, uh, there's signaling that's mediated by pathway activity over time, all right? And that's called dynamics. For example, in, in PC12 cells, uh, sustained versus transient uh, ERK activity leads to differentiation versus proliferation, respectively. Also, in Drosophila gastrulation, uh, dynamics of ERK signaling can dictate lineage choice between endoderm or ectoderm, all right? So it's not just the signal, but it's how the signal is in incorporated and internalized. Um, and up to now, it's been tough to really analyze that because it's it's hard, right, to technically to quantify signal over time in these asynchronous cell populations. You get a lot of noise, and it makes it difficult to parse how individual cells interpret the signaling dynamics and also the, the functional relevance uh, of that signal interpretation. So that's, that was the issue. That was a problem. In comes Tim Schroeder, who, who's really famous for looking at these kind of temporal dynamics, real-time imaging, signaling in pluripotent stem cells, hematopoietic cells. Uh, and here he brought it to a new level here in this developmental cell paper using optogenetics to force specific ERK or uh, AKT dynamics in mouse ESCs, while also at the same time um, looking at the signal in, in incorporation, internalization, and how that aligns with uh, fate choice. Uh, and what they show with this really elegant, highly engineered system and a ton of live imaging and tracking that I encourage our readers to have a look at, they show that ERK activity duration or amplitude or you know, the, the dynamics of ERK signaling, whether it's transient, sustained, oscillatory, that alone uh, doesn't influence the exit from pluripotency, but the sum of those activities over time does. And that, that's kind of confusing. But here, for example, I thought this was a really cool point, is that the cells retain the memory of previous ERK pulses and how long they retain that memory depends on how long that uh, initial pulse length was. So, you know, we talk about the memory of cells and epigenetics. Here's like this kind of signaling memory that's incorporating into cells that allows them to interpret the duration and dynamics of ERK signaling differently. And of course, AKT dynamics in, in counterpoint, uh, they, they uh, counteract that ERK uh, differentiation in maintaining pluripotency. So for me, this is a, a really, cause you know, I'm not a, a signaling guy per se, so it was it was really eye opening for me to see, you know, one the insight that it's the dynamics of signaling, sustained oscillatory. It didn't occur to me. I was more of an on off type of guy in my thinking, but also what really impressed me here is uh, is the methods and the imaging and the engineering 
that was utilized to to tackle this and interrogate this in a very uh, high resolution mechanistic way. So kudos again to Tim, Tim Schroeder. I'm a big fan of his, have been for as long as he's been doing the work, Arun. Yeah, absolutely. This is a great story, a really nice basic developmental application of a technology that's taken neuroscience in for one, but the rest of the biomedical community by storm, and that's optogenetics, right? Um, you know, the other part of this is developmental cell, I don't think gets enough love these days. It's almost fallen off the map a little bit, and it's sort of been supplanted by cell stem cell and other developmental journals in some ways, but there's some amazing stories, very sound scientific stories in developmental cells. So I'm glad, I'm glad you're covering this one. Absolutely. I mean, there are a couple of limitations to, to address here. One is the kind of the, the imaging side of it. Fluorescent spectra is actually, the overlap between the fluorescent spectra actually prevents simultaneously observing AKT and a uh, or dynamics in the single cell in the same cell. So it's a technical issue that they're handling here. And so they actually have to make inferences about how they're relating to each other at the population level. Okay, so I think that's a valid concern. And they also mentioned looking at other receptor tyrosine kinase families and seeing how they dictate dynamics as well, in addition to like, say, FGR1. or I mean, that's what they focused on was FGR1, but also potentially PLC gamma, other signaling pathways that could influence this interplay. So I think there's, a, for one, you know, it's building the tool. It's using the tool in the appropriate context. And I think this just unlocks the box for the rest of the studies that they're going to do here. It's really cool. Yeah, the tool set here is is super impressive, you know, from these opto FGF receptor one optogenetic engineering tools, also these ERK and AKT biosensors, as you were referring to there. I think that's a real breakthrough technology that has been kind of trickling through the developmental biologist community, also whatever, all science, cell science community. Um and, you know, it shows how these biosensors, although in this case, non-overlapping, but I think that's a technical issue that can be resolved moving forward, but how these biosensors can be leveraged uh, in combination with the amazing imaging technologies that we have nowadays to gain real insight at the population level about signaling and cell culture. And echoing what you said about the dev cell, I love the dev cell journal. The thing is, people is that a lot of dev cell stories are really deeply rooted in the animal models and animal development. And this is a stem cell show. So I was so psyched to be able to tie these two and give the love to the editors at dev cell. Put some more stem cell papers in there, guys, and, and we'll throw them out there. I mean, we love your journal uh, and it, it needs to get more run in my view. I agree 100%. We got to have some dev cell folks on here one day. So maybe we can make that happen. Who knows? In the near future. Moving on to another cardiac story. I mentioned I have a couple of cardiac stories here. And this was this was interesting. I think it has potentially some implications uh, for translational implications, you know, related to breastfeeding, if of all things. Uh, this is, you know, talking about gamma linoleic acid in maternal milk driving cardiac metabolic maturation. That's the title of this nature paper. It's an interesting connection. So a particular type of acid, you know, like gamma-linoleic acid in, in breast milk potentially influences cardiac maturation. Who knows? I mean, they're using a, uh, a rodent system to evaluate this with the, you can consider the implications, right? And you can understand why this story got a lot of popular press. Okay. So let's dive right into it. You know, when birth, this amazing process that we all go through, it's a metabolic change challenge to your cardiomyocytes. And this is you know, I hate to link it back to 
IPS cardiomyocytes, my favorite cell type, but IPSC cardiomyocytes are immature because they're considered to be fetal-like, right? And those fetal-like cardiomyocytes, whether it's in the womb or in the IPSC system, they go through this metabolic shift, this glycolysis to fatty acid-based metabolism shift. And that's kind of what is going on at birth as well. There's a challenge to cardiomyocytes as they reshape their fuel preference for from gly, uh, glucose to fatty acids for postnatal energy production. For adult myocytes, this is how they get a lot of their energy from, from fatty acids, right? And this adaptation is triggered by these postpartum environmental changes, but the molecules that are actually driving some of that change some of those changes in cardiomyocyte maturation, in particular metabolic changes, aren't well studied. And this is a this is a beautiful study. They're showing that this transition from immature metabolism to mature cardiometabolism could be mediated by maternal milk, which is provided during breastfeeding or some, some sort of analog, right? And they found that this gamma-linoleic acid or GLA, which they call in the study, maybe the specific molecule that's coordinating this, this is a, a omega fatty acid, it actually enriched in maternal milk. They're showing that GLA binds and activates uh, retinoid acid uh, X receptors, RXRs, as a ligand potentially. And these ligand-regulated transcription factors that function downstream to the GLA binding are expressed in cardiomyocytes actually from the embryonic stages. So they're responsive to this GLA, which is pretty incredible. And they did a bunch of genome-wide analyses actually revealing that the lack of RXR, this retinoid X receptor in the embryonic cardiomyocytes caused a chromatin landscape shift that actually prevented the induction of this RXR dependent gene expression signature that ultimately controls the mitochondrial fatty acid homeostasis. So it, this molecule, this one molecule could be responsible for that shift in cardiomyocyte metabolism from an immature state to a mature state. And that molecule could be provided in breast milk. This is incredible. And so they they took it a step further. They actually found that GL, GLA supplementation in, in rodent systems that actually uh, uh, lack the RXR can help restore the proper function. And so, and this is demonstrated both in vitro and in in vivo systems. So they ultimately they're finding this GLA RXR axis as this key transcriptional regulatory mechanism that's underlying cardiomyocyte maturation. I mean, there's so many implications here, not just developmentally, but also for iPSCs. Maybe this GLA is the magic ticket. And incredibly enough, it's found in breast milk. Mother's milk. Amazing. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in mother's milk. Uh, and it's it's the impressive thing here is that they pegged it down to this one compound. Because I guess, I mean, I, I, I just would love to see, you know how it is with science. You know, you get all the data and then you write the paper as though like you did it in a really sensible, ordered way. Like it was all you had it all figured out beforehand. I want to know where they like, oh, I wonder if mother's milk is a key to heart maturation. Like, was that the hypothesis at the outside of the experiment or do they kind of back into it? I would love to know, be a fly on the wall in, in that lab meeting. But um, the, the, the amazing thing for me here in terms of the how this relates to human physiology and development. Uh, and this was thrown in at the in the discussion um, is this is potential link here where they show there's this uh, like I'm not going to say it all. I guess I'll say it Car carnitine acyl carnitine translocase deficiency, this hack TD 
this metabolic disease that promotes heart failure and neonatal death in humans is caused by mutations in this RXR control gene. So another link that suggests that maybe there's a tie-in and some relevance to this for human um, physiology and development. And of course, you know, I got to ask, what if we take it down to the cell level in the context of IPS? I'm sure you've thought of this. Are you thinking of getting this GLA in, into your cultures room? What do you think? Yeah, I'm hoping to get to the 1938 compound, the GLA compound, make this magic cocktail that's just going to turn my cardiomyocytes into just like perfect adult human cardiomyocytes, and I'm going to get the Nobel Prize for that. That's my dream. <laughs> no, but I think there's a lot of cool potential here just for studying the implications of this molecule. And yeah, like what you're alluding to, maybe you can use GLA in, in an analogous fa fashion to like folic acid supplementation, you know, in the neonatal form. Maybe if you supplement this molecule uh in 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 breast milk or or whatever you know formula or something that can help kids who have these issues and maybe that's the ultimate translational dream here it's a miracle mother's milk moving on we're going to talk about some ethics with dr in suhyun in just a minute but before we get there i got a quick message from stem cell technologies they are hiring Stem Cell Technologies is a world leader in developing services and tools for scientists working in cell biology, regenerative medicine, immunology, cancer, and disease research. United by a foundation of scientific integrity and driven by a mission to advance science globally, Stem Cell is a team of scientists helping scientists. They're looking for creative, driven people to join their international team, explore more than 80 current offerings in areas such as R&D, sales, business operations, quality, and science communication at jobs.stemcell.com. All right, everybody. Today with us, we have Dr. Insu Hyun, who is member of the Harvard Medical School Center for Bioethics, also director of the Center for Life Sciences and Public Learning at the Museum of Science in Boston. Dr. Hyun's interests include ethical and policy issues in stem cell research and new biotechnologies. He's a principal investigator of a brain initiative funded project exploring the ethical issues surrounding human brain organoid research and a co-principal investigator of an NIH grant identifying ways to improve the oversight of stem cell based human animal chimera research. Insu, thank you so much for being on the show today. Hey, great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for being here, Insu. And you've, of course, had a front row seat in the stem cell biology field for a, a while now and have never really shied away from discussing the importance and the implications of different new technologies that are actually emerging in stem cell biology or, you know, technologies like CRISPR that are closely intertwined with stem cell biology. And I mean, in fact, you've worked on the ISCR guidelines for stem cell research, this document that serves as a cornerstone in our field and considers scientific topics that should or should not be pursued by the community. And we always talk about all these amazing technologies that are just constantly emerging in stem cell biology, for example, all of these new in vitro models for studying early human development. So we'll start off kind of broad, and this is a, just a very broad question. What technologies or areas within stem cell biology are you the most excited about right now or intrigued by right now in part because of their bioethical implications that they that they hold yeah it's funny how things sort of go full circle um so when i finished my phd in philosophy i was a young faculty member looking for an area to specialize in and i got my phd in 1998 that was the time when dolly the sheep was first cloned 
and my dissertation advisor was on President Clinton's Bioethics Council. And so one of my first things I did in the area of bioethics was help him write a report on the ethics of human cloning. And at that time, they didn't really make a distinction between reproductive cloning and research cloning. It was just all human cloning kind of with the idea of creating a baby. Um, and so I got interested in bioethics sort of like at the intersection of stem cell and reproductive biology uh, and philosophy. And uh, so it was a good time, right? Because that was right when human ESLs launched onto the scene. Um, I started to learn a little bit more about that research and basically followed that tsunami to where it's taken us today before it was all about, you know, the human embryo and, and the moral status of the human embryo and the source of human ESL lines. And now we're at a point where we're so much further in the research now, you know, stem cell pluripotent technology is like a bedrock technology in so many ways and in so many ways in biotech. So just kind of riding that wave and kind of seeing where things are settling now. Um, so I said this brings me full circle because I think the most interesting area for me as a bioethicist is the embryo modeling work being done with pluripotent stem cells, both IPS and ES cells, right? This whole idea that like th th this, this mistaken thought that IPS cells could finally get us away from the embryo question, I think is proven to be false, right? Because now people are using IPS cells to model human early development. Um, so there's been kind of this interesting, you know, return back to the beginning of sort of like recapitulating human development using somatic cells and reprogramming, you know, the somatic cell donors um, early development. It's, it's really quite fascinating how things are kind of coming full circle. So I'm really fascinated by the embryo modeling work that's happening. That really can't be done adequately without doing um, you know, an assessment of the reliability of these models compared by comparing them to the real thing, to real human embryos. So that brings up the whole, you know, human embryo cultivation work, brings up the 14-day rule for how long you can culture these embryos. It's all sort of tied together. I think there's also a really interesting way of bringing in the CRISPR work, especially if you're, you know, have some idea of some kind of application for, uh, you know, um, overcoming genetic disorders, heritable genetic disorders, or some kind of really interesting overlap there. So it's all kind of back in that mix of uh, early human life, reprogramming, the specter of cloning. That's all coming back. Yeah, full circle. And I mean, I remember it, it all began, at least for my PI during my post uh, or my pre-doctoral, my dissertation, you know, before the whole idea of stem cells is hijacked by medicine, and I mean that in the best way, it was really about understanding human development, right? And that's what got everyone so excited. And, the, and all the developmental biologists were like, finally, we have a tool here where we can really model human processes, human developmental processes. And now look, here we are with these synthetic embryos. But going back again, uh, you, you had this Fulbright to study the implications of human cloning in South Korea back in uh, 2005. Um, now, some of the younger stem cell scientists may not recall, but us old heads remember 2005 in South Korea for what has become known as the Huang Affair. And this is in reference to Huang Woo-suk, a South Korean veterinarian who was in a race to generate the first patient-matched human embryonic stem cell line using, as you alluded to there, somatic cell nuclear transfer, but was ultimately shown to have faked results and committed a few other ethical violations. Ultimately, he's redeemed himself, still practicing science, although much lower profile. 
This was a really unique case study, I think, in how research ethics are compromised and the science kind of buckles under the pressure of personal collective ambition, whatever you want to call it. You had a front row seat. Tell us about that and how or whether uh, this episode in the history of our field still resonates uh, today. Yeah, that, that's such a fascinating historical case. And you're right. I mean, there there's this whole new generation of people working in labs who just they were just too young to really remember that time. But but for us, you know, it's still it's still kind of a, a fresh memory. Um, so what happened there was um, I had just arrived at a medical school as a tenure track faculty in bioethics. This was the uh, Department of Bioethics at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine one of the very few medical schools in the country that actually has its own department of bioethics. So here I am, I, I jump into this medical school scene where clearly the, the standards for promotion and evaluation are kind of medical school, medical journal kind of focused, right? So uh, in that setting, I got the best piece of advice I ever got from a career standpoint, when my chairperson at that time told me, and so you really need to, to get promoted, you really need to focus on a particular area of science or medicine and kind of become the person in that area. And at that time, I had been publishing, you know, articles in clinical ethics, well, doctor-patient issues, informed consent, and, and I thought, well, okay, I, that's good advice. I do need to pick a major, so to speak, in bioethics. And, you know, let me, let me go back to my early interest in stem cells. It was getting kind of hot again at that time. And it was right at that time, um, early 2005, when I was applying for a Fulbright to kind of kickstart this major in bioethics that um, Wusa Kwang in South Korea announced that they had cloned the first human embryos and derive ESLs from them. So they got, you know, they did they, they this achievement. And I was really curious to know how did they get, like, why was that team, the team that was able to succeed? And how did they get all these eggs donated from women to, to uh, you know, support the research program? And so I applied for a Fulbright Fellowship, uh, you know, faculty award. The shortest time you could go at that time was for three months. And, and I couldn't take a sabbatical. I was junior faculty. And I thought, well, I'll try to go for the summer of 20, uh, 2005. And, uh, and I got it. And so what happened was I arrived, I think, at kind of the peak of their, of their fame. Because it was, I remember... Uh, I'm, I'm getting ready. I'm packing up in like mid-May to get there in June. I'm kind of getting ready for my for my summer there. And two big things happened at that time period. One was they came out with their second science paper about the 11 patient-specific stem cell lines. So not only did they get stem cells from a cloned embryo, but they got it from you know nuclear transfer using patient samples. And so they got patient-specific stem cells, and the efficiency apparently went up so that all you needed was one egg donor, one somatic cell donor, you could actually get a particular um, uh, SCNT line. So that second paper came out, and about the same week, I think, that's when the National Academy of Sciences came out with their guidelines for human embryonic stem cell research. And I think it was spurred in part by kind of the speed at which the South Koreans were going. And, and so some of the, the American academies wanted to have some kind of guidelines for U.S. researchers around this area. Uh, so I, so I, I kind of collected myself, you know, and like read these things and showed up in June. And it was such a strange experience. So I show up and um, 
you have to take a taxi from the nearest subway stop to get to Wu Kuang's lab. I like guess a little far to walk. So I got out of the subway. And by the way, at that time, he was like a, a major national hero. So every publication and all the newsstands had his face on it. And on TV, they had this channel that was like running his biography 24-7, like just on the constant loop. It's like if you took Michael Jordan and Einstein and rolled them into one person, this is what his level was in South Korea. Okay, he was like more popular than the president. So I get out of the subway. I'm going to go meet with the team for the first time. The whole idea was to study the ethics of human research cloning in South Korea, especially you know, how did they get all the eggs? How did they get you know the program off, off the ground and kind of study kind of like the cultural and ethical dimensions of human research clients. So that was kind of like the, the project that uh, Fulbright was funding. So I get into the cab coming out of the subway stop and I said, can you take me to, I think it was like building like 87 or something. I said, can you take me to building 87? And the guy, the cab driver says, oh, Wusa Kwang's lab? Like he knew like <laughs> where he was. And so I got dropped off and, and I and I get into the lab. I sit down in the conference room. They had just come back from this like whirlwind tour of Brazil. So a bunch of the people came in the room. They're wearing these like Brazil soccer jerseys, the whole team. So the whole team comes in, it's like 15 people. I'm on one side of this long conference table by myself. The other side is like filled with the team. And we like, when it comes down in the middle, I sit down and he says, um, I, a lot of people, a lot of bioethicists wanted to meet with me and I turned them all down, but I said yes to you because you're Korean. And said, Can you speak Korean? And I said, a, a little. And so then he's like, from then on, he just spoke to me in Korean. And it was just, it was bizarre. So what I was supposed to do was just, you know, learn about how did they, you know, do their program? How did they get this off the ground? And I immediately got introduced to a law professor, uh, Kiwon Jung, who worked with them and kind of coming up with the informed consent process. It was actually kind of rigorous, the informed consent process. And so I got in touch with him. I kind of studied kind of what they did in the past, but it very quickly pivoted to the team asking me, can you help us go forward? So they were trying to form what's called the World Stem Cell Hub. That was going to be kind of like a central place where everybody from around the world would come to South Korea to, to Seoul, to Seoul National University learn or at least get their technicians to do somatic cell nuclear transfer and derive some cell lines uh, there and bank them and share them with researchers. So it's like, like this like repository or, or, or hub for all this activity. They said, we need ethical guidance on how to get that all started. No, not, not sort of technically, but just like all the policies around it and informed consent on this. It was really aimed at looking at the future. And that's how I met everybody. Like everybody was coming in that summer, like all the people from Harvard, from you know, from the UK, like you name, you name them. They were coming that summer. That's, so I was like kind of in this really fortunate circumstance of being able to just meet everybody as they're coming in. And I remember, you know, this one time. It's a funny story. Um, so Ian Womack comes over, and he was interested in a project that they wanted to, you know, do for ALS. And the big thing there was they really wanted to match with the mitochondria. Of the egg donor with the somatic cell donor so they, they, they thought to do this project we we need somatic cell donors of people who have als but we need their female relatives to provide the eggs <laughs> so um so that was kind of an interesting you know uh, uh, constraint on the, on the research so i was having lunch with them at a noodle house and Ian Woman's like, you know, eating noodles with me and his hands kind of shaking. It turns out later he, he developed Parkinson's disease, but his hand was kind of shaking. 
And I asked him, I said, you don't actually do the nuclear transfer yourself, do you? He kind of laughed. He said, no, the, the, the graduate students do that. And I'm sitting there thinking, it's because you cloned that damn sheep that I got interested in bioethics. And here I am sitting with you, you know, uh, having noodles talking about how best to kind of move forward with their research ethically. But anyways, I met a ton of people that summer. I learned a lot about the science. What was crazy, what caught everybody off guard, right, was uh, later when, when it was exposed, just a few months later, that all sorts of things started unraveling, right? First, we had this American collaborator, Gerald Shatton, say that, you know, he's no longer going to work with the team because he found out there were ethical lapses. And what was that? We later found out some uh, women in their lab donated internally to their egg program. And so that was interesting. I didn't know that. And uh, and that actually violated the, all the whole informed consent protocols that my colleague in South Korea had developed for them. So he and I kind of, you know, went on a little bit of investigation of like what's actually going on here. Um, and then more and more things started happening, right? They, there were people accusing them of uh, falsifying their images or doing image manipulation. And so it got people to really dig into their research and that, that it completely unraveled. So the last time I saw the team, was right before all this broke. I, I went back in October for the World Stem Cell Hub opening. And I, and I go there and it would look wonderful. It's a beautiful facility. And then like a few weeks after that was when all this started coming out in the news, right? So it started all unraveling in, in November. So I learned a lot from that. I mean, I learned a lot of the science. I networked with a ton of people, but I thought that was so bizarre. I don't think I'll work with stem cells again for a while because it just, it's kind of a little bit traumatic, you know, and, and a lot of people kind of ask me, like, why didn't you, like, didn't you see anything wrong? And I, and I told them, no, in fact, how would I know what, you know, what an IVF ESL line looks like as compared to an SCT one? I mean, that's, that's what they determined that, that they were IVF derived stem cells, uh, not uh, SCT. Even the researchers that were going there working with them, they, they couldn't tell. How would I know, you know, as a philosopher, PhD, how would I know that these are these are uh, uh, not what they said they were? So that was very bizarre. I thought, I'll never work with this group again or, or this subject area. And then right after that, uh, George Daly, who was incoming president for the ISSCR, uh, called me and said, hey, you know, I saw that you've been involved and in kind of working on some informed consent issues and stuff in South Korea. Would you want to join an international task force with the ISCR to come up with a set of guidelines, kind of like the NAS guidelines, but more internationally focused? And so I got sucked right back in to the stem cell world from that. And uh, from there, I, I ended up working. Somebody pointed out I was the only person that worked on every single version of the guidelines. Like I tell people, it's sort of like being in a pie eating contest and the prize is more pie. <laughs> <laughs> I just get getting more and more work. It just it just kept going on and on. But but it's it, that's been like one of some of the most rewarding work I've done ever in my career is work on those guidelines, meet, work with closely with the people in the field. Uh, in that very first set of guidelines, I was here. I am an untenured like assistant professor at a medical school bioethics department. And uh, had a lot to do, and then and then George asked me, you know, this task force, like the the, the task is so large, we had to break into subcommittees. And Insu, will you chair the subcommittee on human biomaterials procurement? So this is like all the eggs, embryos, somatic cells, all the stuff you need to start uh, chlorophyll stem cell lines. 
It's like, can you chair that committee? And by the way, that's probably going to be the most controversial committee. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, sure, why not? Um, so, so that was my start on that committee, and it was, it was, it was a blast. It was so interesting, and I learned a lot from the people on the committee. Anna McLaren was on my committee at that time, and that was just, it was such an honor to work with her. Uh, and then she passed away not too long after that. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean that's how I got sucked back into the field. It was it was bizarre. Uh, I will say that the the Wusa Kwang scandal, it taught me a couple things about how important it is to have like embedded bioethics or kind of like bioethics kind of on the floor, like close to the action. So I got I got that mainly through ISSCR, but also the risk of kind of being a bioethicist associated with a lab because you never know what might go south. Um, it relies on so much trust, right? You have to trust them at the word of them saying, this is what we're doing and this is what we're seeing. And if they're lying to you, you have no, you have no way of checking that, right? Um, so you kind of have to take it at face value because only the people doing the technical work will really know. Um, and you, of course, you can give advice and they can take it or leave it, um, but hopefully take it. So that kind of set a pattern for me for kind of the way I, I approach uh, my my bioethics style. Um, yeah, so it was it was a fascinating case, but it was it was a pivotal one for me professionally. You know, I, I moved from South Korea when I was four. Usually, people in that circumstance think you have to go to the U.S. to make it big. Well, what I did was I went back to South Korea, and that's where I kind of got got my footing. <laughs> And my identity professionally in that weird situation. Um, so I came back, you know, I came back to the U.S. with that. Yeah, yeah, it's really a full circle moment. And here you are, you know, years later, still, you know, so fully entrenched in our field and perhaps the, you know, the most uh, preeminent bioethicist in stem cell biology. And like you said, you've been involved in the ICR guidelines forever since the very beginning. I've got a, I've got actually another story about Shinya and and the relationship to the Korean scandal. If you're interested, yeah, of course, share. So the Korean scandal had really long lasting effects for the stem cell field in surprising ways. I first met Shinya Yamanaka when his mouse iPS cell paper came out. This is before the human proof of principle. And, uh, and we were in this little tiny village in Norway. He was giving this very small meeting talk on, on uh, IPS cell technology. And afterwards, we're hanging out. And he said to me, did you notice that on the cell paper, the mouse paper, there were only two authors? He said, yeah. And I noticed that. I'm sure it was a big team. He said, yeah. The reason why we didn't have everybody on that paper was in case somebody fabricated a result. We didn't want our team to go down like the Wusak Huang team. So the Wusak Huang team wow. had everybody listed and they all got mm. their investigation. And it ended a lot of very young, promising careers. It was it was tragic in that way. You got to think it wasn't just about the PI. It was about the entire lab. And this is a very capable, extremely talented group of young scientists. Chinya said we didn't want that to happen if there was, heaven forbid, some kind of... Um, fabrication. He also asked me at that time, if there's a research result, do we have to publish it? And I said, well, don't do what the Koreans did and publish something you didn't do. But yeah, generally, you do want to publish whatever research results you get. Like, what are you worried about? He said, in vitro gametogenesis. He said, uh, at, at very early days of IPS cells, he says, I think it may be possible to get sex cells one day from IPS cells. 
Should we look into that? Should we publish that kind of work? I said, well, come back to me later. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, and we are definitely getting closer. And the sad reality is it's probably not the first time and it's not going to be the last time that something like that happens. And of course, even just the last few years, we've seen a new iteration of you know, uh, a technological issue, a bioethical issue popping up associated with a brand new technology. And of course, I'm talking about CRISPR, right? You know, this is a technology that's taken the biomedical research community by storm. You can integrate it so easily with stem cell biology. And it's no secret that this new generation of CRISPR editing is, it, it has its own qualms and its own concerns to be associated with. And we don't often see new biomedical technologies inspiring new Hollywood films, for example. And there've, like I said, there've been certain dark sides and there's been a dark side to the modern genome editing revolution with this case in point being the unwarranted human embryo editing situation that happened in China just a few years ago. But with a technology that's as cheap, relatively easy and simple to use as CRISPR, how do we go about regulating this? You know, like how do we educate scientists and also the general public perhaps in part to prevent these kind of situations from happening again, these situations that give biomedical research a, a black eye. What do you think? Yeah, you know, there's a surprising amount of current regulation that's applicable to the kind of CRISPR work you describe. Um, and it comes in at different levels, right? So obviously you can use CRISPR to study things, study development in the lab, right? So everything's in vitro. And so, okay, so that's not really going to trigger many social concerns and many regulations at that point because it's not going anywhere but just it's just staying in the dish um once you start moving into animals or doing modifications of animals or putting human materials that have been CRISPR modified into animals then you have the whole regulation of animal research there are already like layers of regulation in place that kind of i think filter through the science pretty well um when you're talking about putting CRISPR modified cells into patients. Um, the FDA has has tight control over that. So, so this presupposes, of course, that you're talking about a locale where the activity is happening, where there is good enforcement and there are good oversight mechanisms for these kind of like more standard regulations. So, so I don't mean to say that like, you know, um, there are no places on earth that, that you know, that you couldn't do some of the stuff that people are dreading. Um, but in most like places where there's high science capacity, there's there's good you know science capacity, you're gonna get this kind of layer and layer over with regulation. I think where they're possible, um, so so when you're talking about putting into a human body a modified cell, let's say you know they're immune cells or they're pancreatic cells, something you've done, you you modified it. You have to have FDA okay that because that's a highly manipulated human cell. Okay, um, when you modify a human embryo or gametes, and if you're going to transfer that into the womb for uh, reproductive purposes for human, uh, again FDA you know looks at that because that's a modified human cell or embryo. It's been it's been heavily manipulated, so you're not going to be able to like legally get away with that. But of course, again, people are concerned about people going offshore. There have been concerns around, for example, the mitochondrial replacement therapies, where some people have kind of gone rogue and they've they've jumped ahead of the regulations and clinical trials, and they've done some mitochondrial replacement clinical therapy um, 
uh, in some some remote place, you know, some remote island. So it has been known to happen, but that's not like the widespread danger, I think. Um, so in answer to your question, I think that there are mechanisms in place. And then the question is, but are there still gaps there or are there still concerns that um, that we may have about you know, people kind of going going rogue and, and going too far ahead of you know where society is comfortable or where science needs to go at this point. Uh, probably, I mean, my my bigger concern about CRISPR is not so much the use of CRISPR on human cells, because again, I think there are these like safeguards in place. It's maybe using them in non-human primate animals uh, models for uh, for you know genetic modification, which could actually result in germline transmission and modification. Um, a little bit worried about that, much more so than the chimera work, because as you know, chimeras they can't reproduce other chimeras uh, typically, but you could with you know with with CRISPR modification create like a, a different different type of non-human primate, um, or or you know a brain model or something of of, of non-human primate that gets a little concerning. Um, yeah, I, I I actually think if you really wanted to worry about human germline modification, I would really kind of think about the intersection between in vitro gametogenesis and CRISPR. It's probably my advice, not that anyone should take this advice, and I'm not giving this advice, but but if you really want to CRISPR a baby, I'm going to just use that loosely, right? Um, probably don't want to do it to the egg or to the sperm or to even the, the zygote or early embryo. That, that's too kind of unpredictable. You probably want to modify a cell line and get all the changes you wanted in that cell line and then derive gametes from that. Uh, that to me is probably the better approach, but I don't think people are really talking too much about that and kind of thinking ahead about how to have regulatory oversight over that. Of course, there's going to be regulation over any fertilization tests and especially transfer of the of the embryos that result from IVG, in vitro gametogenesis. Of course, there's that, but is there anything extra that we would look at for using a genetically modified master cell line to derive your sex cells? Um, I, I'm not aware of anything kind of in the works there, but that's probably the way to do it. If you really want powerful, reliable, you know, repeatable um, modification. Yeah, well, now that you mention it, I, I work in a clinical laboratory in a high-volume center for assisted reproduction. So I, I've got a pretty keen interest in the capacity for pluripotent cells to generate gametes uh, using, as you said, in vitro gametogenesis. Um, and of course, with Katsuhiko Hayashi demonstrating the generation of fertile pups from two male mice, the so-called bipaternal offspring, just a, a few months ago, uh, we feel plenty of inquiries along the lines of how long until same-sex couples can have shared babies. Of course, nobody in their right mind would apply the particular methods that Hayashi used in that paper in a human system. You know, they had to get rid of the Y chromosome and then duplicate the X. It's just a lot. It's like a series of aneuploidies, pretty much. Um, but even the generation of gametes from like gold standard IPS cells, I think comes with some unknown unknowns that could, as you said, be integrated into the germline and thus be heritable. Um, I hate to put you on the spot here, but you brought it up, my friend. Uh, do you think there's a safety threshold we could reach where you would be comfortable with clinical application of iPSC-derived gametes? And if so, I mean, what does that look like? 
Yeah, I, I think it's for me personally, I, I'm open to to the possibility of, of that being applied ethically and permissibly. It would have to be circumstances for which um, there are no good alternatives, alternative approaches to avoiding the transmission of a heritable disorder. Okay, so I think that's a pretty high bar though. I mean, we have we have PGD, we have, you know, um, we actually even have gamete donation. I, I, this is a, it's an interesting question because I think if it does fulfill a, a, a desire, it's a very specific one. It's for the person who says, I want to have healthy genetically related children, not just genetically related to me, but to my partner. This, this is why gamete donation is not acceptable. Okay, that's a, that's pretty specific. Like, how many people are actually that insistent? I don't know. I, this that's a sociological question, right? Uh, but assuming that there are enough people out there that would kind of like justify going forward with this technology for that narrow circumstance, or again, or it might be like like we'll have no unaffected embryos to screen out. It might be a circumstance like that. So it's kind of an unusual circumstance. Um, yeah, so so as long as it's like used for these applications where there's no other good alternative, and it's really aimed at overcoming a very serious disorder, and it, there's a lot of dispute about what's serious enough. Like this comes up in PGD, a lot of questions about like you know, so is is deafness kind of serious enough? What about you know, Down syndrome? Like what's a serious enough condition to try to screen out? using this technology or even like sex selection, people you know want to use it for that. Um, so recognizing there's a lot of debate about what's serious enough and what a reasonable alternative is. If we kind of sort through that a little bit, I can I can envision applications where um, yeah, like IPS cell-derived gametes that maybe have been modified. Um, now if it's unmodified, that would only have to be a circumstance where the person who wants to reproduce has no viable mature sex cells, right? So, so, so I mean, I could, there are plenty of cases of that. So I think that that's great. Um, I think your question, if I interpreted it right, was about modifying before uh, before IVG, and if that's the case, it would have to be for overcoming these serious disorders that again qualify as serious by some reasonable standard, and also uh, there are no real good alternatives. I think the good alternatives one, I mean, the the gamete donation issue is I think pretty serious because it would have to be that the person says, no, that's not reasonable for me, is insisting on genetically reproducing with a very specific other person. And philosophically, if you kind of want to back up into like bioethics here, we recognize there's a right of every person to procreate uh, themselves or the, the, their own genetic material, but that right doesn't usually also encompass like a particular pairing. It's usually kind of like, don't interfere, like don't sterilize me. Don't interfere with my ability to pass my germline on. But uh, does that also extend to, oh, by the way, this very other particular person is the, the person I'm going to genetically reproduce with. That hasn't been explored really in the, as to my knowledge in the bioethics literature. So it's a, it's, a, it's a very interesting scenario. And as I said, I I think personally, I could see a way of weaving through the scenario where, yeah, yeah, I think under those circumstances for this this individual that would be ethically permissible. It's just really hard in tech development to kind of know like how many of these little threads are there and to plan your FDA approvable 
um, intervention way in advance with that target audience in mind. Like they can't really be identified ex ante. It's, it's, it's sort of, um, you're hoping that there'll be people there who could use it, but um, you don't really know the specifics of people's individual circumstances. So shifting gears a little bit, I mean, you've recently taken this role as an inaugural director of the Center of Life Sciences and Public Learning at Boston's Museum of Science, the Museum of Science, right? I actually used to live right next door to the museum in uh, in Cambridge, and I loved it. I actually went really frequently, had a few date nights there at the planetarium. Um, for those people who haven't been to the Museum of Science, I'd actually highly recommend checking it out. Maybe when folks are in town for ISSDR, because, you know, of course, that's happening in Boston this year. And a big part of the museum's mission is actually something that we're very fond of here on the show, science communication and being able to distill new scientific advances like all these things we're talking about here today and all these new discoveries into a, a more general discourse than perhaps, you know, everybody can understand or anyone can understand. And I was a, a guest on one of your recent virtual seminars to the, to the general public about stem cell research in space, which is a pretty hot topic. And there's going to be a workshop on it at the ISCR, actually. Thanks for the invite for that. So tell us more about this new role at the Museum of Science and what you're hoping to accomplish during your time with the museum, and maybe more broadly, the importance of general science communication in, in this day and age where science has taken such a spotlight in the general public. Yeah, a really cool opportunity came up to be the inaugural director for the Center for Life Sciences at the museum. And this came at a time for me when professionally, you know, I've been doing, I've been a bioethics professor for about 25 years, full tenure professor. Um, and it was getting a little bit repetitive. I was teaching the same courses every semester. And, and I was never a fan of grading, but just grading tests of papers. And um, this opportunity came up that they're looking for somebody to bring together through the Museum of Science, four sectors, industry, the public, uh, government, and um, educators, and, and all around emerging issues in the life sciences. And I thought, well, boy, you know, I've been doing that for so long. I've been basically translating, publicly communicating the science. In order to get the ethical dis discourse going, you have to kind of explain to people what, what is the experiment, what are people doing, explain that in a very clear way, whether it's to my undergrad students or you know, to other bioethicists. So I've been doing that for a long time. I have the, I have the connections that I think they're looking for at this museum position. So I applied and I ended up getting the position. And it's been really interesting to be in this space where I'm kind of like, you know, I've always been interested in public science communication, public engagement in science and the issues around, you know, science. But it's always been kind of in a peripheral way. Like, you know, we might get a grant, we might have like a little bit of time, like at the end of the cycle of the grant to like have some forums and some like workshops. But this was like a full-time job, like, you know, learn from science communicators who've been at the museum for decades, learn from them, like what does it take to communicate science to not just like tuition paying college students and grad students, but like anybody. Like if you can hold the attention of the typical museum visitors here, which would be, you know, it could be three generations you know, little kids, their parents and their grandparents and like hold all of their attention. That's that's tough. That's tough to do. Like that takes a whole other skill set that I don't think bioethicists or academics know how to do. You don't want to pull up the PowerPoint slide, right? You need to engage in some other way. Why is that important? Well, we keep talking about public engagement in bioethics. We need to engage the public. We need to get them you know, to understand and even weigh in on some of these advances like going beyond 14 days for embryo culture or what do they think about human brain organoids and that should inform policy you know these are taxpayers that that, that pay for a lot of the science 
you know, it, that takes so much dedicated work. I, I thought I, I want to specialize in sort of what does it mean to really be a full-time person who works on public engagement. And so I'm learning a ton. I mean, it's, it's really challenging. It's really exciting. You have to use all kinds of modalities that are not available through traditional academia. Um, it has to be somewhat entertaining. You know, you have to think about different modes of learning for people, different age groups, different backgrounds. If you're really serious about communicating with the public. So, so that's why I took on this position. I, I wanted a new challenge. I didn't want to keep doing the same thing for the next 25 years. But, you know, I want to take some time and learn from this environment. And maybe one day I'll go back to full-time academia, but at least I will have learned what I, no way I could have learned this in a, in a medical school. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so that's been really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an exceptionally important thing to be able to communicate science appropriately to the general public, and you know, hopefully, it's something that we can, you know, attest to here on the show. That you know, I think you have a leg up on us, that's for sure. But it, I think everybody, every scientist out there, can can do their part. And also, I think part of it is being in a community like Boston with such a nexus and a, a, an influx of science and scientific progress, new technologies that are coming out left and right in Boston. I mean, I, I assume that Boston community is really interested in what's going on at the museum. Yeah, yeah and, I've been getting lots of requests from people that you know ask if there are ways that they could collaborate. I'm talking about like like labs. I'm talking about you know networks of neuroscientists at Harvard. It's been so interesting. We have an idea for some programming coming up where um, last December, the FDA said that um, you don't have to necessarily go through animal models to get your drugs approved. You can actually use mm -hmm. like organic chip systems, et cetera. Well, that, a lot of these are being developed at the Beast Institute. So we may want to partner with them and start having some symposia to the public about this, this pivot in preclinical work. Uh, I think it could be very in interesting for people interested in industry, in uh, in drug development and biology, but also a lot of people who are very concerned about animal welfare. So it kind of hits that really interesting intersection of populations that can sort of find common ground to talk about a new advance that could make a big difference in their lives because it touches on like some of their core values and interests. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I, I, there's no city like it when we're, we're talking about Boston. And of course, before uh, we let you go, we want to talk a little bit about the ISSCR annual meeting, which is of course also having happening in Boston down there at the, the seaport, the convention center. And it's the global nexus of stem cell biology. And of course, you've been involved with the ISSCR for a really long time. It's amazing to see how this meeting has just exploded over the years, and not just the scope of the basic science tracks at the meeting, but also the phenomenal ethics and science policy workshops and seminars that are always taking the spotlight with all these cool new technologies that are emerging. There's a lot to talk about, right? And I'm assuming, obviously, you're going to be there uh, since it's in town. But tell us a little bit about you know what you're most excited about for the meeting, what you're excited about seeing, the comments on the technologies that you're hoping to discuss with the scientists. What are you most excited about, about the biggest annual meeting in stem cell biology? Yeah, well, there's so many things to be excited about. I'm excited to see what new advances are happening in the field, especially toward clinical translation and disease modeling and tissue, tissue uh, engineering. Um, we actually have an ethics track that's scheduled for Thursday, where the topic for the ethics track is um, essentially the 14-day rule and uh, public engagement around that. So we're going to have some, some speakers and some discourse around that issue. Prior to the uh, uh, kickoff of the meeting, I'm actually really looking forward to having you, Arun, in, in, at the planetarium at the Museum of Science. We have a 
public event free in the evening at 7 p.m. on the 13th. And that's really about stem cells in the planetarium. We'll have a specially curated planetarium show for the audience, followed by your discussion with the audience about your work. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, so I know ISCR is excited about that because usually the public events before the meeting are like, you know, a panel discussion with Q&A, kind of typical. And we're going to have a planetarium show because why not, right? We're going we're gonna to be at the Museum of Science. Let's do something different. So I'm really looking forward to those events, the ethics track, the planetarium, uh, uh, public engagement piece on the 13th, and just hearing all the really cool stuff that's going to be, you know, presented, that's going to be presented at the meeting. I, that's always a highlight just to, to, to hear from uh, the best researchers in the world in this field. Yes, just a few short weeks away. Arun and I are really excited and, you know, it's nice talking to you here, but we'll see you in just a few and we'll pick up the chat again. But before we let you go, we got a couple of peripheral questions. Uh, first, if you could answer any single scientific question, regardless of your expertise or chosen field, what would that be? Oh, uh, you know, I, I don't know if this is a purely scientific question because it's, it's also kind of philosophical, but the question of what is consciousness and how do we know it's there? So this comes up in medical applications, right, for, for grave brain injuries and comatose patients. It also comes up at the beginning of life and also in you know, chimera research and human brain organoid research. I think it's, it's a question that kind of cuts across lots of different areas. Um, but yeah, it's sort of like, how do we define what human consciousness is and how do we know that it's present? That's 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 a biggie. That, I know in, in philosophy of mind, that's like that's like the big question. Um, but I'd love to to find out what the um, answers are to this. Well, maybe when the uh, simulation ends, you can reboot and share with us all what what the actual <laughs> secret is there. Finally, if you were not a scientist or bioethicist in this case, what would you be? Um. So I think I would. I would have liked to have been a writer of fiction. So I do tons of writing. Hopefully it's not all fiction, right? Or none of it's fiction, but but just like creative writing. I really enjoyed that when I was in college. I was I did a lot of creative writing. So if I can write novels, that would be that would be a good alternate reality, alternative reality. Well, I, I like to think that, you know, in, in the field that we're in, we kind of wade through all this science fiction that ultimately becomes fact. So, and in bioethics in particular, because you got to live in your imagining of, of what the implications and impact of all this stuff is. So you're already doing it, but, uh, you know, when you're done at the museum and if you don't go back to academia, I'll, I'll read a few of your books. So put put me on the list, on the short list for that. Sure. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll see you in just a few weeks. Can't wait to talk to you in person. And thank you so much for sharing with us and our listeners all your insights and your deep thinking on these really, really important matters. Uh, until the next time with more bioethical research questions on the menu, Dr. Hyun, thank you so much for joining us and sharing with us today. Thanks for having me. All right, everybody, that brings us to the end of this episode don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers you can also reach out to us on twitter at stem cell podcast or by email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests thanks for listening to this little ethical discussion we had with dr insu today 
We'll be back in a couple weeks. Until then, thank you so much for listening.